Well, I'm thankful to be here. Uh, I truly believe that this is a most important week, a special week. We've had blessing here. We've had God's presence here. And uh, as some of my friends know, it is truly a grief to me that uh, I can't be here for the whole conference. I think it's very good to penalize people who don't come for the whole time. But uh, unexpectedly, our youngest son has just today arrived home from Australia. He's only here two days and leaves first thing Thursday morning. I just have two days with him, and it's, uh, if I can get back, I will, but I think it's unlikely, and you'll understand. But uh, I think it is a most important conference. Our numbers don't really matter, but uh, if we get true help, how much good can be done to others? And then I'm thankful to the organizers of the conference for inviting me to speak on this subject, taking me back to it. I have been forcefully reminded, among other things, of the brevity of time. It doesn't seem so very long ago. It's actually 30 years that in 1972 we had the anniversaries of the fourth centenary of the death of John Knox. There were a number of meetings, some of you remember, I recall that Reverend Donald MacDonald of Greyfriars Inverness was invited. He was the moderator that year. He was invited to an international conference on Knox at St. Andrews. There were various meetings, various addresses. And uh, 30 years have gone by since then. And I feel some real conviction because the truth is, although I did some study of John Knox 30 years ago at that time, Uh, The years have slipped by, and I can't say that I have read that much of Knox in the last 30 years, and that is shameful. And it is no consolation that um, my six-volume set of John Knox's writings, David Lang's definitive edition, printed in 1895, when I got it 70 years later, the pages hadn't even been cut. And so we don't cast stones at others, but we do remember that time is very short, and it's... uh, It's quite staggering that such valuable books can be sitting unused almost from generation to generation. So preparing for tonight has compelled me to reopen Mr. Knox, and I am thankful to the organizers of the conference for making me do that. Now, a great deal has changed since 1972 in Edinburgh. What changes we've seen? John Knox's steps used to run down from the mound to Princess Street. They're not there anymore. They're now called John Playfair's steps. He used to be able to go and see his statue easily with the Bible in hand and so on outside St. Giles. It's gone. It's hidden inside somewhere. The very stone that marked his grave has been obliterated. And uh, when I was in John Knox's house the other day, I was amazed to find it's being transformed into James Mossman's house if you please. So, in a way, these changes um, we might have anticipated. But to be truthful, as I've thought about Knox again, I have to admit that I've been a little bit surprised at changes in myself. And uh, by which I mean that uh, when I look back at uh, notes of an address I gave in 1972, I could see some things in the 16th century in 1972 that 30 years later I find not so easy to see there. Uh, In fact, I don't think they're there at all. And uh, I'd better explain what I mean. You might get alarmed what I'm going to say. But to to illustrate it, 
uh, when I spoke on Knox in 1972, uh, coming to the great years 1559 to 1561, the years, you remember, when the French army was uh, dispatched out of Scotland, the Parliament met in 60, <coughs> Scots Confession was taken by the Parliament, the Protestant faith was declared the national faith, the Confession, Book of Discipline, 1560, and so on. Well, when I came to those years, my heading was the years of victory. The years of victory. And... Uh, when I thought about those years, it seemed to me that we lived in the very dregs of time by comparison. What wonderful years they were and how different our own days are. And I have to say that it doesn't seem to me now that that heading, the years of victory, actually uh, conforms with the truth of the situation uh, or certainly doesn't give it justice. For example, in 1561... Mary, Queen of Scots, returned to Scotland. The mass was said again in Holyrood Palace. And what's more, it was not only said, but it was her liberty, her right, her permission to do so was defended by such people as Aaron, who had been one of Knox's great supporters. Listen to these words of John Knox that he wrote in this period that I had called the years of victory. It's a letter addressed to Anne Locke, written in October 1561. Anne Locke was one of the members of his congregation in Geneva. She had now returned to London. She was an outstanding woman, later married Edward Deering, the famous Puritan. He writes to her from Edinburgh, the permission, the allowance of that odious idol, the mass, by such as have professed themselves enemies to the same, does hourly threaten a sudden plague. I thirst to change this earthly tabernacle before that my wretched heart should be assaulted with such new dollars. Pain, grief, dollars. If you or any other think that I or any other preacher within this realm may amend such enormities, you are deceived. For we have discharged our consciences, but remedy there appears none. Our nobility, I write with dolor of heart, begin to find ease good service for God. I have finished in open preaching the Gospel of St. John, saving only one chapter. Oft have I craved the miseries of my days to end with the same, October 1561, time that I had called the years of victory. So it was a romanticized view, and looking at it more carefully, it's uh, not a historical view. David Lang, speaking of the setbacks which came after 1560, he sums it up by saying that these setbacks served to retard the progress of the gospel and to darken the prospects that had dawned so brightly on the Reformed Church. And Lord Eustace Percy, who has a very readable biography of Knox, he says of the years 1562 to 65, Holyrood, a palace, may well celebrate this prosperous weather with masks and music and dancing. But Knox is in a very different mood. 
everywhere Calvin's Reformation hangs on the verge of defeat. All is wrong in Scotland. Churches without ministers, ministers without stipends, avarice, oppression of the poor, excess, riotous cheer. So the truth is that uh, the battle, and that was surely Knox's favourite word, the battle. The battle was to go on right to the end of his days. 1571, the year before his death, he was compelled to leave Edinburgh. The situation was so precarious. He went to St Andrews for 13 months. We read that in St Andrews, the majority of the university had steadily set themselves against him and his preaching. And it was from that experience at St Andrews at the end of his life, here comes a car, uh, from that experience that Knox said, above all things, he said to the General Assembly, preserve the Kirk from the bondage of the universities. Oh, I thought that was a good quotation. I could have given you more length, but I mustn't. Preserve the Kirk from the bondage of the universities. Well, in 1572, he was back in Edinburgh. The majority of the nobility were against him. The castle was held by the Queen's forces. And worse than that, in a sense, the governor of the castle was Kakadi of Grange, who had been one of Knox's right-hand men. It was Kakadi of Grange who was with Knox in St. Andrews in 1547. Knox was, at his death, thankful that the gospel was being preached across Scotland. But uh, he had no illusions about the idea that a nation was turned to God. One of his last recorded prayers has these poignant words... Be merciful to us, and suffer not Satan utterly to prevail against thy little flock within this realm. Preserve, O Lord, our young king. Let his reign be such as thou mayest be glorified, and thy little flock comforted in it. So, I think that that romanticized view is not only bad history, but it's bad for us, because it depresses us because we find ourselves in a battle. And the truth is, as I say, that Knox lived and died in a mighty battle. And we have victory before us, we have the assurance of success, but the victory that we look for is the day when all things will be put under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the victory. And until that day comes, the church is under the cross. The church is in a battle, and we are in the same battle today. Well then, how do I organise my material? You will understand that my address of 30 years ago was no good for tonight. Um, So I gave myself to thinking about how to take it up with you and uh, should should I assume that we all remembered all the facts and uh, the life and the biography and then when I remembered how much I had forgotten myself, I thought, well, I can't do that. So I'll set out to give you as briefly as I can an overview of the life, and then proceed from that to observations. Now, he was born, I nearly said, as you know, I hope you know, he was born about the year 1514, but most of the books on Knox that we've got on our shelves tell us he was born in 1505. And there's a little lesson in this. You know, David Buchanan, in the middle of the 17th century, 1644 or something, produced Knox's history with the life of Knox, and in it he said that Knox died at the age of 
67. And ever since that, everybody followed his date, presumed he'd got it right. In fact, what Buchanan had done had been to follow the wording of John Spottiswood's History of the Church of Scotland. And Spottiswood's printer had misread a five for a six and given Knox, made Knox, ten years older than he was when he died. Well, would you believe, and it's humbling for us, isn't it, that people don't go back to first sources, and though right through the centuries people said, well, he died at 67, while he was born, obviously, in 1505. And it was quite a sensation in 1905 when all the preparations were ready to celebrate his birth when Hay Fleming suddenly produced an article which proved conclusively that Knox was not 67, but 57. So I say we can't take it for granted that everybody, but it's an important point. 1514 approximately was the date of his birth. And Gifford Gate, Haddington, uh, his father and his grandfathers fought under the standards of the Hepburns and the Bothwells. It's quite possible that one or more of them had died at Flodden. We know virtually nothing about Knox until... 1536, when he was ordained a priest. 1536. Ten years before that, William Tyndale's New Testament had come in to Scotland. And ten years after that, ten years after 1536, we know that Knox had become a kind of bodyguard to George Wishart. In the meantime, he'd been a church lawyer, apostolic notary, as they were called. And at some point then, God had called him, as he says, please God to call him from the, from the puddle of papistry. So 1546, he's with Wishart, and there comes the, the uh, time in East Lothian when Wishart says to him that one is sufficient for a sacrifice, and he dismisses Knox just nine hours before Wishart himself was arrested. Wishart was arrested Burned to death, you recall, outside the castle of St. Andrews, 1st of March, 1546. Two months later, Cardinal Beaton, who celebrated that death, was himself murdered in the castle. And the castle then became a stronghold for people fleeing persecution, some Protestants, some just thugs actually, but about 120 men. Knox, in the meantime, was in East Lothian. He was tutoring the children of uh, some Protestant lairds who themselves were being persecuted. And in 1547 at Easter, uh, Knox uh, himself goes to the castle at St. Andrews with his three pupils. Somebody overhears him teaching these pupils, John Ruff, I think it was, and was so impressed with the teaching that uh, you remember how they compelled Knox to take up the public ministry of the word. Well, it wasn't for very long. The castle was besieged, and in August of 1547, the French arrived, great 18 galleons of the French fleet, um, bombarded the castle, and the place fell. And so the inhabitants and Knox among them were taken into exile, and for 19 months, John Knox was a French galley slave. Only recently did I read a description of those French galleys they had uh, usually 50 men 
manning the oars, slaves. 25 on each side of the boat, six men to a bench, 10-foot bench, a 50-foot oar. 13 feet of the oar was inside the boat, 37 feet out, six men to every every oar. Four feet between the benches, which meant that if everybody didn't row at the same time, person behind or before would be hit with this massive oar. The decks sloshed with water because the it was so made that it was on a curve and the hatches were so battened down that water could cross without, uh, without any damage to the ship. It must have been a pretty horrific sort of existence. And yet, marvel is that it was in that situation that he managed to write a summary of Henry Balnave's treatise on justification. First thing he did, and uh, this was smuggled into Scotland, his summary of Balnaves on justification. How he did it, he said it was done in an incommodious situation. (laughs) So, then the English to the rescue, and in 1549 uh, he was released and found his way into England. Edward VI is on the throne, Protestant government, make use of this preacher. Knox is established in Berwick, wild, rough kind of frontier place really on the borders uh, Berwick and then he preaches in Newcastle and finally he becomes chaplain to the Duke of Northumberland 1552 so these were bright days and they ended very suddenly you remember with the death of the young king and Mary Tudor Bloody Mary comes to the throne persecution restarts Knox lingers months after Mary's come many have been arrested and uh, at the, literally at the last moment he makes his way north uh, heading for Berwick he gets as far as Newcastle his friends implore him to leave at once that he wouldn't even survive if he went as far as Berwick he was being hunted for everywhere the reason he wanted to go to Berwick especially was his wife was there Marjorie Bowes uh, Knox is preaching in Berwick, seven miles from Berwick, the great Norham Castle, fortress. Uh, Sir Richard Bowes was the captain of the castle. His wife, uh, Elizabeth, their daughter, teenage daughter, Marjorie. Mother comes under the power of the gospel. Marjorie comes under the power of the gospel. And sometime about 1552 or 53, we can't be certain, uh, the young teenage Marjorie became Knox's wife. Well, he left her at Norham because it was safer than taking her south, but when he came to flee, that's why he was so desperate to get back, and he could not return, so he had to leave for Europe without her. It troubled him no little. Albeit, he says, writing to them, albeit that I have in the beginning of this battle, battle again, appeared to play the faint-hearted and feeble soldier the cause I remit to God, yet my prayer is that I may be restored to the battle again. So for the next few years, Knox is in several different places, in poverty, in Dieppe, Frankfurt, and then a flying brief visit to Scotland in much danger in 1556. While he was a galley slave, God had given him the conviction that he would preach in St. Andrews again. But it wasn't to be in 1556. He returns to the continent and is found these next years at Geneva, 
where his wife and his mother-in-law join him. So these were great and happy years at Geneva, the most perfect school of Christ. The exile ended in 1559, the beginning of what I had called the years of victory. Well, it was a wonderful time. 2nd of May, 1559, Knox is back in Scotland. You remember the very day he returned to Edinburgh, a conference was being held at the, grave, the Blackfriars Monastery, the bishops and priests, and they were discussing the reformation of the church, and they came to some momentous conclusions. Let me give you one or two of them. One was that none should enjoy benefice ecclesiastical except he be a priest. Another was that if any priest was found in open adultery, for the first fault he should lose a third of his benefice. And another, none should put his own son in his benefice. These were celibate priests, you remember. Cardinal Beaton had, was it eight children? Anyway, here was a new ruling that they were not to put their sons in their own benefices. And while the priests were talking about this kind of reformation, something very different was happening in, the Scot- in Scotland itself. First of all, well, the Scottish Reformation is made up of two distinct elements, and I think we have to recognise it. And the first element is the spiritual movement. We don't have its history. It was obviously secret. These were days of persecution and burnings. But Knox says, the tyranny notwithstanding, the knowledge of God did wondrously increase within this realm, partly by reading, partly by brotherly conference, which in those dangerous days was used to the comfort of many. So here were groups of believers meeting secretly in homes, the privy kirks, as they were called. Homes or sometimes in the fields in summertime, at the risk of their lives. How many they were, no one can say. We just get hints from the, some of the trials which went on that they were considerable. And we know, in fact, that the Archbishop Hamilton in 1554 informed the Pope that a great part of the Diocese of Glasgow, he said, was infected with heresies. And another Catholic writer, John Leslie, says that the Protestant preaching went on in chimney nooks, in secret holes, and such private places to trouble the whole country. So here was an underground church, the Privy Kirks. And uh, that the existence of those congregations explains why suddenly, in 1559, parish churches could emerge. Those that it was just a surfacing of what had been previously hidden. Now the second element in the Reformation was the political and revolutionary element. The lords of the congregation. The aristocracy, paramilitary, armed, lairds and others gathered together in uh, revolt against Mary of Guise the governor and French forces so on one side you had the French army with Scots of course with it Catholic forces and on the other side the lords of the congregation and their army and Knox it was who merged these two movements the spiritual movement the political movement came together under Knox's leadership. 
Knox, you might say, was the chaplain, the leader, spiritually. But he also played a political part. He sought to raise money so they could keep their soldiers in the field. He had important diplomatic links in the whole connection. And it was Knox in 1559 when the, the army of the Lords of the Congregation was beaten outside Edinburgh, uh, badly demoralized, mauled. They left Edinburgh one night in retreat with the population catcalling them from the rooftops as they went, arrived back at Stirling, utterly dejected, and it was Knox that preached to them, November, November the 5th, was it, 1559, and uh, perhaps we'll come back to that sermon. So, in the Reformation in those years, the spiritual and the political were chaotically intermingled. And uh, there were those on the Protestant side who were there for all kinds of motives. The wealth of the church was suddenly exposed. There were people who could lay their hands on it. Uh, Knox says, amongst us were those who sought more the purse than Christ's glory. So it was a mixture, as everything political always is. But in the sovereign power and goodness of God, the Scots Confession was taken by the Parliament in 1560 although they did not ratify the Book of Discipline. So the Roman Church was overthrown, officially. But in the years that followed, the real struggle went on. As I say, all Knox's lifetime. And what a period of ten years it was, you know. Battles with Mary, Queen of Scots, with Darnley, murder of Rizzio, murder of Darnley, civil war, Mary's, at last, imprisoned flight to England. Chaotic situation. And Knox in the middle of it. And then at the end, the assassination of the regent Morton, the good regent. It was uh, uh, an extraordinary period. And you could say that Knox's deepest aspirations weren't fulfilled, but he laid down master principles. And these principles were taken up and loved by the people of God through the centuries that were to follow. Now, let me just list those principles briefly as I see them. We believe them, we hold them. There's no need in this setting for me to expound upon them. But I think if we say there are three, the first was this. We exist for God's glory, and therefore zeal for the honour of God is the essence of true piety. And conversely, to offend God, to despise God, is the darkest form of human depravity. And so Knox's zeal against Roman Catholicism sprang from this source. He saw it as a system that was bound up with honouring men and honouring idols. His indignation against the Mass was not that it was a mistake about the nature of the sacrament, it was idolatry. It was dishonouring to God. The second principle, that Christians are bound to universal obedience to the word of God, no matter what cost, no matter what consequences, and that nothing is to be lawful in the church but what is found in Holy Scripture. So he wrote to Queen Elizabeth, whatsoever God approves by his eternal word, that shall be approved, 
and what he condemns shall be condemned, though all men in the earth should hazard justification for the same. And the third, the true church is to be distinguished from the false church in this way. The true church has Christ for a living head. It hears his voice, it follows him, and a stranger it will not follow. seems to me, brethren, these are the three great master principles that he laid down and which, as you know, were taken up and held to faithfully by so many in the days to come. Now, something on Knox as a person. It's only really at the end of the 19th century that uh, we could be certain about this. There was a lot of confusion about his portrait and what he looked like, and uh, Carlyle thought he'd discovered a new portrait of Knox, a so-called Somerville portrait, and people debated this and that. But in the end, it was finally made clear by, um, by Brown, Hume Brown, in his two uh, biographies of, of Knox. So he was under medium height, black hair, broad shoulders, florid complexion, heavy forehead, blue-gray, penetrating eyes, keen, animated gaze. Certain majesty in his look, they say. And when he got angry, when he got angry, uh, there was an air of command upon his brow. In temperament, he wasn't a kind of human cannonball. That wasn't Knox. He wasn't inflexible and insensitive. Thomas McCree says that Knox would get upset even to hear children crying. I didn't look up that reference, but I know he says that. Certainly he had a vehement hatred of sin, but the hatred existed against sin in his own heart equally. He was a humble man. He could say at the end, in youth, in middle age, and now after many battles, I find nothing in me but vanity and corruption. And yet to deduce from that that he was gloomy would be entirely wrong. He had the comfort and joy of assurance of salvation. You know, George Wishart has that beautiful translation of the words from the first Swiss confession that God is friendly-minded towards sinners. And Knox knew that. God is friendly-minded. I am assured, he says, my manifold rebellions are defaced. My grievous sins are purged and my soul is made the tabernacle of thy godly majesty. I am assured. And from that assurance came the tenderness and compassion with which he treated others in spiritual distress. The idea that Knox was a man who sort of furiously thundered out judgments from the pulpit is not remotely true. We have that description of his preaching that he gives us himself, and it's uh, in terms of a banquet, feast, and Christ presides, and he says, I did distribute the bread of life as of Christ I had received it. Of this I am assured that the benediction of Christ so multiplied the portion I received from his hands that during the banquet the bread never failed when the hungry soul craved or cried for food. And at the end of the banquet, mine own conscience bears witness that my hands gathered up the crumbs that were left in such abundance that my own basket was full among the rest. A beautiful description of preaching, isn't it? Banquet. 
Christ has filled my hands and when I had done, I, I had so much left myself, my own heart and mind was filled with abundance. He was a man of deep feeling. Listen to these words written to Anne Locke again from St. Andrews at the end of his first year back in Scotland, writing on December the 31st, 1559. I have read the cares and temptations of Moses, and sometimes I suppose myself to be well practiced in such dangerous battles. But alas, I now perceive that all my practice before was but mere speculation. For one day of troubles since my last arrival in Scotland has more pierced my heart than all the torments of the galleys did in the space of nineteen months. For that torment, for the most part, did touch the body, but this pierces the soul and the inward affections. We would know a good deal more about the personal side of Knox if letters to his wife had survived. They haven't. There is just one uh, short one. As I said, she came to him in Geneva, and then he came back to Scotland, 1559, and she followed a few months later. She was with him before the autumn of 1559. Traumatic days. Knox talks about sleeping four hours a night, some nights. And he says this about his wife. Well, uh, first of all, I should tell you that she acted his, his secretary, really. She would write for him. He says, the rest of my wife, sleep, the rest of my wife has been so unrestful since her arriving here that scarce could she tell, scarce could she tell on the morrow what she wrote the night before. So Marjorie's health failed, and the next year she died. She was only, what, about 27 years of age. John Calvin wrote a letter of condolence to him. You, he said, you found a wife whose like is not found everywhere. And in a letter to Christopher Goodman, Calvin wrote, Although I am not a little grieved that our brother Knox has been deprived of the, of the most delightful of wives, Yet I rejoice that he has not been so afflicted by her death as to cease his active labours in the cause of Christ and the Church. So three years later, three years later, uh, Knox remarried Margaret Stewart. From the first marriage, there were two boys. Went to England, lived short lives, died quite young. So from the second marriage, three girls. The youngest was Elizabeth, who you may remember was the wife of John Welsh of Eyre and Thomas McCree says she inherited no inconsiderable portion of her father's spirit. So many false charges have been made against Knox, of course, but one charge that was never made, I think, against him was that he made money from preaching or from being what he was. He never owned a house. He lived in rented accommodation. He moved in Edinburgh from one building to another if the house he died in is the house that traditionally he's credited with living in, it was indeed the house of James Mossman, who I mentioned before. Mossman, though, at this time was in the castle. He was an ardent Catholic. He was with the Queen's party in the castle. So Knox died in another, in another rented home. His comparative poverty is illustrated. Uh, Hume Brown gives this instance. Uh, Queen Mary about this time gave Rizzio uh, 200 pounds to decorate, repair his chamber, presumably his room, 
or rooms in Holyrood. But when Knox died, his books were worth £130, Scots pounds, and the rest of his effects a mere £30. And his wife would have been left nearly destitute if others hadn't come forward to help. So he was no... He made no profit from the gospel. Now I turn uh, to observations. And the first is this. In our situation, we have an advantage that Knox didn't have. That is, that we have honoured traditions that have come down to us. And we stand in these traditions. We have the benefit and the strength of them. Knox was in a very different situation. He was at a new beginning. Church had to begin afresh. He wasn't in the work of preserving or, or, or reconstructing. He was in the work of beginning anew. And we are not exactly in that situation. We, we are in the midst of honoured traditions. We have a history that has come down to us. I say that as an advantage, but I also think it is something of a disadvantage. And let me try to explain. You know, I don't need to tell you, we live in a day when everything traditional is viewed with contempt. That is not what traditions are or where they came from. The religious world of our day is not a world that prizes tradition. And there is some real danger that we, facing that spirit, are over-addicted to every tradition. And I think Knox helps us at this point because he comes as a warning to us. And that is to say that there are times in history when fresh, innovative thinking is needed in the churches. And that was needed in his day. And I believe it's needed too in ours. Now, I don't mean you understand. We need fresh and innovative thinking about the doctrine, the truth that we preach, the error that we oppose, we stand, the church stands on exactly the same basis throughout the centuries. But there are other areas where change can be highly beneficial. Areas that have to do with plans and organization and things of that kind. Now, let me illustrate it. Knox didn't think that the, what we call a regulative principle gives you a blueprint for everything the church is to do. He didn't, he didn't think that. Uh, illustration, the Lord's Supper. The church in Geneva observed the Lord's Supper once a month. Knox, Scott's Confession, uh, four times a year. Why? Well, certainly not the regulative principle. I think the argument was that the superstition that had been attached to the Lord's Supper was so deep-rooted when the Mass was said virtually every day that to uproot that superstition, a major change was made. I think that was the reason. But what I'm illustrating is I'm not commending it. I'm simply saying it's not something that he regarded as strictly under the rule of Scripture. Now, there's another area where too they had a good deal of flexibility and where it seems to me we don't have the same flexibility. And that has to do with 
what part the, can we call them the ordinary church member, the one who isn't an office bearer, not an elder, not a preacher, what is actually their work in the church? Well, they're to attend services and perhaps to participate in prayer meetings, but, but uh, what actually are they to be about in the life of the church? Now, as I mentioned, the Scottish Reformation came to pass in its spiritual momentum through those privy kirks. They weren't official churches, of course. They didn't have official offices. They were made up of merchants and sailors and bakers and butchers and tailors and all kinds of people. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yes, and uh, they met with each other to exhort one another, to pray together to read the scripture, and so on. And they did it, oftentimes, at the cost of their lives. Now, we say, of course, and we're right in saying so, well, these are extraordinary times, and you don't take your principles from extraordinary times. Perfectly true. But the fact is that when the extraordinary times were over and the persecution was ended, the Scots Confession makes very clear that there's an important part for church members to play. For example, the work of readers. Their duty, says David Lang, editor of Knox's writings, their duty was limited to reading the scriptures, common prayers, with liberty when qualified, to explain the scriptures read and exhort the people, hence their name, exhorters. Exhorters. Ever seen an exhorter lately in the churches? Well, they believe that these men could have an important role. And that is by no means all. The Book of Discipline laid down that weekly in the towns there should be a meeting similar to the meeting don't be afraid, it's not charismatic similar to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where all members would have opportunity every man, I quote the, the confession every man shall have liberty to utter and declare his mind and knowledge to the comfort and edification of the church. These exercises we say Sometimes they call them prophesying. These exercises, we say, are things most necessary to the church of God this day in Scotland. For thereby shall the church have judgment and knowledge of the graces, gifts and utterances of every man within their own body. Well, of course, there were rules laid down. There was to be no invective. And exhortations and admonitions were to be short. But the principle was, I quote, that Christians are to be willing to communicate the gifts and spiritual graces of God with their brethren, for no man may be permitted to live as best pleases him within the church of God. Worth reading it. Commend it to you. Every week, a meeting, exercise of this kind, and lest anyone thinks, well, that's a confession, but not Knox. Actually, Knox, in his wholesome letter to the brethren in Scotland in 1556, he strongly urges this very same practice. And uh, you know it's very relevant to the question of who eventually becomes uh, a minister and a preacher of the word because this was the way by which they judged and knew men's gifts. Have Had men the ability and grace to edify others, it was proved and it would have been utterly unthinkable in their day for a man to have been set aside for the ministry who hadn't been through and been seen in this kind of situation. 
Knox says, if any brother have exhortation, question, or doubt, let him, let him not fear to speak or move the same, so that he do it with moderation, either to edify or to be edified. Well, you know, we have hardened into a very different situation. And what I'm saying is here that there are areas of flexibility which the Scots reformers grasped and grasped with great effectiveness. Take another one. Knox was perfectly willing to lend his authority to the work of superintendence. How does that fit with the regulative principle? Superintendence. Well, Knox had no problem with it. The superintendents were simply ministers. They weren't uh, quasi-bishops or anything like that. They weren't a higher office. They were simple ministers. But because of the circumstances, because of the need, these were men of gift appointed to plant new churches, encourage weaker churches, to itinerate, to move around. It was an expedient, and it was an expedient very suitable to the times. It seems to me remarkably like uh, John Wesley's itinerant preachers. There are a lot of things that are similar, and they were working on exactly the same basis. So my point is this first observation that we, while we are to ch- cherish our traditions... They all need to be examined. And we have come to a day in which the church at large is somewhat viewed as the church was before the Reformation. People despise her. And people aren't going to come flooding into our churches and it's needless for us to pray that they will, I think. What we need to pray for is that something will happen within us and within our people that will make our believers a missionary force that will go into the world. And we don't need church buildings for that. These men had no church buildings at all before 1559. But what we do need are vibrant Christians, whether they be plumbers or tailors or whatever they be. But that's what we need. And to get to that, we need a degree of flexibility that we don't perhaps have at the moment. Well, we have to leave time for discussion if we can. A point number two, an observation number two. There's one thing that stands out in the life of Knox more than anything else, and you know, brethren, very well what it is. Various points in his life, we have observers who met him, who heard him, and we have their comment. And this is what they say. They talk about the remarkable effectiveness of his preaching. That's what they talk about. The first witness, perhaps, is back in 1552 in England, Utinovius, if that's how you pronounce his name, writing to Bullinger from London, October the 12th, 1552, and he's talking about a stranger in London who suddenly caught the public attention. He says, Some disputes have arisen within these few days among the bishops, in consequence of a sermon of a pious preacher, chaplain to the Duke of Northumberland, preached by him before the king and council, in which he inveighed with great freedom against kneeling at the Lord's Supper, which is still retained here by the English. This good man, however, a Scotsman by nation, has so wrought upon the minds of many persons that we hope some good to the church will arise from it. One sermon so wrought upon the minds of many persons. Or, 
the sermon in Stirling, November, November the 8th, 1559. The army, dejected, beaten, retreats to Stirling. Everybody's utterly demoralized. And Knox stands and he preaches from Psalm 80, verses 4 to 6. And something happened to the listeners as though they were coming alive from the dead. You know the words of the English ambassador who wrote a little later, we would never have believed. No, sorry, that's not the right right quotation. Do you ever get lost in sermons and addresses? I'm sure you do sometimes. And it's best to admit it when you are. It's no good pretending you're not lost, is it? Here it is. The English ambassador. It's worth waiting for. You know it. The voice of one man is able in one hour to put more life in us than 500 trumpets continually blustering in our ears. Well, take that last account. July 1571. He's in St. Andrews, forced to go there, as I told you. And there's a 15-year-old student in St. Andrews called James Melville. And every morning he would see Knox coming up from the old priory where he was staying with big furs round his neck and a strong staff in his hand and uh, Ballantyne, his servant, holding him up under the other arm. And he was going to the church and he was going to preach. And he was so weak, his health gone, that he had to be lifted up into the pulpit. Where, says Melville, where it behoved him. At first at his entry, to lean. But before he had done with his sermon, he was so active and vigorous that he was like to ding the pulpit into blads and fly out of it. Of all the benefits I had that year, this is Melville, was the coming of that most notable prophet and apostle of our nation, Mr. John Knox, to St. Andrews. I heard him teach there the prophecy of Daniel that summer and winter following. I had my pen and my little book, and I took away such things as I could comprehend. In the opening up of his text, he was moderate, the space of half an hour. But when he entered into application, he made me so thrill and tremble that I could not hold a pen to write. And it was at this time that Robert Bruce probably heard Knox too. So the question is, brethren, what made Knox that kind of preacher? Of course he had unusual natural gifts although he does say in one letter, I am not a good orator in my own cause. But the point is, the pulpit was not his own cause. His authority came from the conviction that the work was God's work and that the message was God's message. And he was so filled by the Holy Spirit, I believe, that he wasn't dismayed by the most discouraging situations Situations where men might justly just give up or say, well, God is frowning on us. God has removed his blessing from us. He was given faith in the darkest situation to believe that it is the power of God unto salvation. And nothing would deter him. Remember in summer of 1559, he was warned by the bishop in uh, St. Andrews that if he went into the pulpit on the Lord's Day, he'd, he'd be he'd have 12 handguns discharged in his face. He went. And uh, that's the scene of Sir David Wilkie's famous painting of Knox in the pulpit. And other instances I could give you in 1565, his one sermon that we have a record of. 
But my point is, his conviction that preaching is owned of God and under the anointing of the Spirit, it can change situations, change individuals. We believe, therefore have we spoken. And he went into the pulpit with that assurance. And it seems to me that if he says anything to us today, he convicts us about the poverty of our faith. We preach a lot, but how much real change does the preaching effect? And our Lord says, according to your faith, be it unto you. Knox was given faith, and he wasn't of himself. You remember that quotation he has? He says, God gave his Holy Spirit to simple men in great abundance. And that's what lay behind the preaching. Compassion for the people, urgency, fearlessness, was faith in the word of God. A last point. The history of the church at the Reformation is a wonderful reminder of how God is in history. That Christ is not only on his, in his church, but he's on the throne and governing all persons, controlling all events. Now you know, it's hard to believe that when people are being burned to death. It's hard to believe that when you're in poverty, in exile for 12 years, separated from your wife, and so on. But they did believe it. They believed that God was at work and that Christ was building his church. And as we look back on that time, we can see that wonderfully. The very things that seemed to be so hostile to the success of the gospel were the things that God used. Fiery persecution scattered the church, sent Knox off into England and then to Geneva. But you know, it was all in God's plan. From England he came back, not only with a good English wife, but uh, more important, he came back with a much bigger worldview. You know, he was, he was well ahead of his day. Committed himself to speaking and writing English because he could see that a day was coming when these two nations standing together would be able to change the course of history. And Geneva, the Geneva Bible, the truth he learned in Geneva, wonderful providence that scattered the church and then gave them this international vision. And persecution was a means that God so wonderfully used. Samuel Rutherford is accurately stating history when he writes this. Christ has a great design of free grace to these lands, but his wheels must move over mountains and rocks. He never yet wooed a bride on earth, but in blood, in fire, and in the wilderness. That's 16th century history. Christ woos the church in blood, in fire, and in the wilderness. Now you know a number of modern writers criticize Knox because they say he simplified history into a struggle between God and Satan. But isn't that what the Bible tells us? That fundamentally is what is happening. Today as we look around us we see great confusion, uncertainty, but there's no confusion in heaven and God is bringing to pass his own perfect will. God is ruling and overruling and directing and we are in that tradition. We are committed to a message that is eternal. 
Knox, it seems to me, if you asked what the keynote was of so much of his preaching, it was to encourage the people of God, to hearten them, to spur them on. And we must do that. We live in difficult days, but God forbid that we should depress our people. Sometimes, you know, even our prayers can be depressing when we pray about when the streets used to be crowded with people and by the time we finish praying, the people are depressed. That's not what we've got to do. We've got to lift the people up and we do that with the word of God. So if I could end with a good quotation from English theology. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Thank you, brethren. I was going to give a book recommendation. Can I do that later on?